Well, we're continuing this morning, or picking back up on our series in the Gospel of John with the text that was just read. It's about the calling of some, actually five, of Jesus' disciples, one of whom is not named in the text, the other four are named. And John, in this text, gives us some fascinating details. They're not included in the other Gospels. And he writes this account, which bears all the marks of a first-hand acquaintance. That's what the details point to here. This material is important because these men, having been with Jesus from the beginning, are going to become his authorized witnesses. So they're not only the first believers, if you will, they, the apostles, become this unique, once-for-all foundation of the church. Right? We have the gospel passed on to us through their lives and through their witness. It's important to see this, I think, about a text like this. No disciple, no Christian is or ever will be in the unique and critical place of this band, this nucleus of the church, Right, this band that will eventually be 12, in which the 12 tribes of Israel are renewed. No one stands in this position again. These men are the non-repeatable foundation of the church. We and all who come after them are the superstructure. And so, I'd like to make two points here. They're in the back of the bulletin. John's disciples and Philip and Nathaniel. So first, John's disciples. This is chapter 1, beginning of verse 35. The next day, John was there again, it says, with two of his disciples. Notice John, the gospel writer. He knows the day that this happens. Right? There was a, there was a, a couple days ago, John the Baptist was interrogated by a delegation from Jerusalem. The day after that, we have an event, and now this is the next day. The next day, the text says John, meaning John the Baptist, was there with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus passing by, and he says, as he's already said once in this gospel, look, or behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples followed Jesus, the text says. Now, of course, later, following Jesus will be used to speak of the life of discipleship, the way of the cross. But here, things are very new, and they're fresh, and they're tentative. And following here means literally following him, walking after him. But even here, I think we already see something basic about Christian witness. It's this. Christian witness is simple. In fact, it's very simple. So we ought not to make this too hard. It goes like this. And this is how it's gone from the beginning. From this text down to the current hour. It goes like this. John sees. John says. They hear. They follow. It's not too complicated. He sees Jesus. He tells people what he's seen. People hear him talk, people follow. Of course, it doesn't always end up with people following. But something like this basic pattern 
is how the church naturally and organically has grown from the very beginning. Right? There's no secret formula here. Yes, we are not pointing to the incarnate Lord visible before our eyes, as here in this text. But we have seen him. But you have seen him in his word, in the sacraments, in the worship and the prayers and the life of the church, in your brethren, in your own life. And so the task is very simple. Just tell people what you've seen. Tell people about him. Pray for opportunities to tell people about him and the Lord will give them. You know, it's a remarkable thing. I'm fond of saying the church, the church conquered the Roman Empire without X or Y or Z. Usually where X or Y or Z is something that somebody thinks is indispensable. Right? The church conquered the Roman Empire this way. As far as I know, they had no evangelism seminars. Right? They had no training. They had no New Testament. They just started talking. They just saw, said, and people followed. Right? The basic calling of the church to spread throughout the world is an organic calling. It has to do with the life of witness. Sure, God will raise up evangelists and the like. But we're all called to a life of witness. This sort of speech, and this is the key, the key to the church's spread and growth. Right? This is how the church spread at the time of the Reformation. It's unchaperoned. Son, coach, how do you think the church is growing in China? They have better techniques than we do? Unlikely. We're very good at techniques. So back to our text. Notice something else here. At least two, at least two of Jesus' disciples were disciples of John the Baptist. Right, so, so John not only baptizes Jesus, some of John's disciples move over into the core of Jesus' movement. It's time for them to move on from the forerunner to the Lamb of God, who's now appeared. And you're given a privileged glimpse into that movement and that transition in this text. This is part of why people in John chapter 1 follow Jesus immediately. Sometimes a reader that's not all that familiar with Christian theology will read John chapter 1 and think it's bizarre. Somebody points at Jesus, people just start following him. Well, that's because John the Baptist has been preaching and teaching about him publicly and openly. That's the reason people don't ask any questions. They've already been instructed. And so Jesus sees them following, and he says, what do you want? It's kind of a blunt question. It's not particularly inviting. Jesus always seems to be trying to shrink his fan base, to decrease his likes on Facebook. What do you want? But the two disciples say, Rabbi, you'll notice this a lot in John. He he translates this, Rabbi means teacher. So John's translating these Hebrew terms, or these Aramaic terms, for his Greek readers. That tells you that John's readership is largely Greek. All these parenthetical, Messiah means Christ, Rabbi means teacher, is telling you John needs to translate these terms for his audience. But in any case... The two disciples say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And in verse 39, Jesus says, come and you'll see. 
Come and you'll see. That's basically what John the Baptist did earlier. It's what we do when we witness. We say, come and see. That's all you have to do. Now, you can get better at it. Of course, we can be trained. We can get more sophisticated. But everyone can say, come and see. We say, come and see, because Jesus says to seekers and to his would-be followers here, come and see. That's, that's, his, that's his word to the world. Come and see. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Taste and see the Lord is good. Come and see. Come unto me, taste and see. You might notice, not only is this simple, there are no arguments here. Jesus proclaims, he announces, he invites. Now, sure, later, he'll make arguments and he'll give signs. He'll defend his claims. Right? Even as when we witness, we may need to make some arguments. Right? There's a place for that, defending the faith, what, what folks call apologetics. But evangelism, sharing the good news, is distinct from that. It's distinct from arguments and debates. It is simpler. It is simpler than that. It is simply saying, come and see, because Jesus has said that to you. It's why we say, among other things, come to church. It's why we invite people to church. Inviting people to church is not a cop-out, as if you're not up to witnessing yourself. It's because here you can see and taste the ordinary means of grace used by Jesus to teach and comfort his people. He's on display in the word and in the sacraments. In the public assembly, the the psalmist says, we drink of the river of God's delights. And so it's natural to invite a person here to taste and see. So you have these two disciples. They're invited by Jesus. They went, they saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. So following Jesus means seeking him and then staying near him. They spent the time with him. They followed, they sought, they stayed. They went, they spent. It it was, the text says, the 10th hour, or some translations, the 4 in the afternoon. The day starts at 6 a.m., so the 10th hour is 4 in the afternoon. I don't want to glide over this detail. Notice what's happening here. John is dating the beginning of this stay, this conversation between these two disciples of John the Baptist and the Word made flesh. And he's dating it to the very hour, four o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus' encounter with his first disciples can be dated to the hour, not just the next day, John's already told us that, but the next day at four o'clock in the afternoon. That, beloved, is the sign of an eyewitness to the events. The next day, four in the afternoon. It's an astonishing thing. Because the word has become flesh and dwelt, lived, tabernacled among us, the two here can sit down and dwell with him. It's remarkable. One of the two we learn is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And the first thing, text tells the first thing he does is he finds his brother Simon And guess what he tells him? 
come and see. Come and see. Many of us can remember the eagerness with which we shared the faith when it was new to us. Andrew is displaying that first flush of zeal here. It's a good thing, but it is natural and normal for it to wear off. But we should still be thinking first of ourselves as witnesses to Christ. As people who send out invitations. The first thing Andrew does is he finds Peter and he tells him we have found the Messiah. This is the first of three confessions of faith in the passage. And again, the reason these confessions of faith happen so effortlessly is because of John the Baptist's teaching ministry. He's ready to remnant. And so we're told that Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. He brought him with him. That's the goal of saying, come and see, to bring somebody with you. We bring people to Jesus. We invite them, then we bring them. We count nobody out. We give up on no one. We exclude no one. This is the the other thing about the church's witness from the beginning. It was organic. It was natural. It was person to person. It was universal. There were no laws. There were no ethnic boundaries. There were no cultural boundaries. Now, we take all of this for granted today. We stand ready to share with any and all because no one knows what Jesus will do with a person. We're powerless to transform them, to be sure. But we point, and we invite, and we bring. And guess what happens here? You have this rough-hewn, uneducated fisherman brought to Jesus by his brother, and he's going to become the rock. Kephas in Aramaic. Peter in Greek. The, the witness, the leading member of the apostolic foundation of the church. Just a guy wandering around in Galilee, a fisherman. Becomes the rock upon which Christ builds his church. Don't count anybody out. No one is beyond the pale. The second point here then is Philip and Nathaniel. Verse 43 The next day, Jesus finds Philip on his way to Galilee and he says, Follow me. This is different. Jesus alone can say this. We don't say this. He commands now. Follow me. And again, Philip, prepped by John the Baptist, responds promptly. He finds Nathanael. He shares the good news with Nathanael. Again, what's happening in the text? One person, person to person, one at a time. And we get this second confession of faith in the text. Philip tells Nathanael, we have found the one. This one's a little richer. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets spoke. This means John the Baptist has taught them well. right? Robert announced that there's going to be a class that uh, Pastor Spanger is going to teach starting this Thursday. Behold the Lamb, seeing Christ in, in the law of Moses and in the prophets. This is how Christians from the beginning have read the Old Testament. Again, you may take this for granted. This may be something that's obvious to you. But it was not something that was inevitable. And it is something which is revolutionary. For now, now we read the whole history of Moses and the prophets and Israel, and we see Christ in them. Right? You know, when we invite people 
it turns out we are going to need content. Content about the person that we're inviting them to come and see. And you can see from the beginning, these earliest disciples really have a rich content. Some of it's latent, to be sure. It's not all surfaced. But this is the one about whom Moses wrote in the law and about whom the prophets spoke. So already, there's this rich idea that the Christ is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament revelation. He's also Jesus of Nazareth. And that's a scandal because Nazareth is this unimportant town in Galilee. Less than 2,000 people. Jesus of Nazareth, the text says, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel, who's also from the region of Galilee, but he's from the town of Cana. Apparently he thinks it's a hipper place. He doesn't think Nazareth can be much of a promising place, right? He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? He's dubious about the Messiah coming from that place. So it turns out that when you confess your faith, people have doubts. They have questions. They're skeptical. And those eventually do need to be addressed. That can take a while. But again, let me encourage you. One way to address people's skepticism is to invite them again. Right? And that's what Philip does. He does what Jesus did to the two disciples. He says, come and see. He really doesn't answer Nathaniel's question. You know, it's okay. People are going to ask us questions. We're not going to know the answer. You know what you say to them? I don't know. Come and see. Maybe you can't answer a certain objection or ease a certain doubt, but you can say, come and see. We're not saving people as it is, right? This is a sense in which it's a test of our faith that we believe it is in the resurrection and the risen and ascended Christ who saves men by his spirit and not by our cleverness. So coming and seeing is often the cure for a lot of objections and prejudices against the faith. A whole host of objections can vanish if you can get a person in one of these seats. So come and see. Jesus says it to us. We say it to the world. In this sense, the Great Commission is the Great Invitation. I hope this is encouraging because it's, it's perhaps to some of us a, no, a more non-threatening way to view it. We're inviting people. And so Nathaniel decides to take Philip up on the offer. And Jesus sees him approaching and he says, Truly, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or no guile. This is very important. Sets up the rest of the story in an important way. Remember, Israel is what Jacob was renamed after he was broken, after he wrestled with the Lord. Jacob was a deceiver. He was full of guile and deceit. And so Jesus is saying this, you are an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. You're all Israel, no Jacob. There's a generosity about you, Nathaniel, and a purity of heart that you possess, despite that wisecrack about my hometown of Nazareth. Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? How do you know my heart, my inner person? And Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. This is a supernatural knowledge here. This is not wisdom or careful perception by Jesus. And Nathaniel understands what he's face to face with here. And he confesses, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. 
another confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messianic King. It's a remarkable confession, and Jesus responds to it in verse 50 by saying essentially this. You haven't seen anything yet. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? I mean, you recognize that I have supernatural knowledge. But you will see greater things than that. Notice the seeing theme. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. There's a lot of come and see, come and see, come and see. And then Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than you've already seen. Right? Jesus, when people come and see, Jesus shows himself. And then he says, you'll see even greater things. Right? We spend eternity coming and seeing greater things. This is why boredom is such a red flag in the spiritual life. It's such a sign of grave danger to be bored with the glory of Christ or God. To think perhaps there are no greater things to see. You've basically got your head wrapped around the the content of the faith, and now you're grinding it out. God doesn't want us grinding it out. He wants us coming and seeing and then seeing more things that are great. And then Jesus unpacks this in a difficult verse, verse 51. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's drawing on the vision that Jacob had in Genesis 28. Now remember, Jesus called Nathanael a true Israelite. Nathanael responded by calling Jesus the King of Israel. Jesus now evokes a story from the patriarch of Israel, Jacob. You recall Jacob saw this vision of a ladder set up on earth. It reached up into the heavens and there were angels of God ascending and descending on it. Jesus is evoking that vision. So what is he saying here? It's interesting, right? We're at the very outset of Jesus' ministry. This is one of the first ways he describes himself. He's saying, I am the ladder. I am the link between heaven and earth. I'm the mediator of the new covenant the fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs. I established the new Jacob and the new Israel. And remember, when Jacob had his vision, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place? This is the house of God, Jacob said. This is the gate of heaven. And so Jesus is saying, I am the place where God dwells on earth. My body is the new temple. I am the gate of heaven. Now, a careful reader of John's gospel already knows this. Why? Well, we know it from the magnificent prologue where John has told us the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is just expanding on that here. He's not referring to a single event. He's referring to the whole of his life that John's about to expound in the gospel. That is the greater thing which lies in front of Nathaniel, who's just begun to follow Jesus. That is what he will see. His descent in the incarnation, his baptism, his teaching, his signs, his death, his being lifted up in glory, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again in glory. What are we to see? What is Nathaniel being promised that he'll see? The majesty of Christ's person. 
right? And the magnificence of his works. That is what he sees. And that's what we will see throughout this gospel. So I want to conclude first by inviting you to read, take up the text of John's gospel. Take it up. I invite you as disciples of Jesus with his own words, come and see. You know, it's interesting. Scholars have divided the, the, the Gospel of John for many, many decades into two parts. The first part's called the Book of Signs. The second part's called the Book of Glory. There's wonders here. Signs and wonders and glory in this text for you. Great depths of glory and goodness and grace await you here. Right? You may think, how can I come and see Jesus? Well, we come and see him where he's told us he'll be found. Namely, in the text of the gospel, in the text of Holy Scripture. And as you taste and you see here, go forth to friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and to all whom the Lord leads into your path and do what you see in our text. Do what the church has done from the beginning. Invite them to come and see Jesus. In this sense, every baptized believer is concerned about the growth and spread of the church. Tell them that he's the Christ, the one about whom Moses wrote, and the prophets spoke. Tell them that he himself says to them and to all, come and see. Come and see great things. Amen.